yeah? Uh, but, oh, there we are, alive and well. It's, it's a strange for us to be back in here. It's a, a little darker than I remember, so I guess our eyes have just acclimated those kinds of things, but if you've been here, it's great. Um, not to put them on the spot, and they may be around, but Cliff and Allie Piles is in the house today. So if you guys remember, Cliff and Allie, uh, they've now moved to Raleigh. And uh, we can't stand that city. It takes so many good people from Johnson City, but they're there and flourishing. So it's really, really good to see them. Just a little uh, story that uh, Allie and Cliff, they were a part of that initial group to help plant Redstone Church. And so if you know them, make sure you hug their neck and, and those kinds of things. But if you, even if you don't know them, you should thank them for being a part of that faithful few that took a step in faith and, and kind of stepped out. Uh, it really, really is great. Um, as far as introductions, there is not, there's not one. We're just going to jump in full-fledged. If you've got your Bibles, turn to the book of Jonah. If not, we do have booklets on the back, and we've printed out the entire book of Jonah. It's not really long. It's only four chapters, but we've printed it for you, and we've, we've encouraged you to kind of keep that booklet all summer long so that you can make notes and in margins and those kinds of things. Uh, but today, just to get the parameters and just to be able to kind of see the whole, the breadth of the story, I'm going to read chapters 1, 2, and 3. So settle back for story time. Uh, this is the word of God as it is spoken to us through the prophet Jonah. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up against me. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and he went down to it to go to them, with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord, this is the Lord introduction here, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea and there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. And they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner parts of the ship and laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said, What, are you, what, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us and that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on, on whose account the evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where did you come from? And what is your country? And of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid, and they said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. And he said, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and the sea will quiet down before you. For I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. 
So they picked up Jonah and they hurled him into the sea. And the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. And the men feared the Lord exceedingly, for they, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All of your ways and your billows passed over me. Then he said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your temple. The waters, they closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me, weeds wrapped around my head and the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed in upon me forever. Yet you brought me up, now, yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed to you, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah upon dry land. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Now Jonah, was, no, I'm sorry. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. Jonah began to go into the city, going a day's journey, and he called out, "Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown." And the people of Nineveh believed God, and they called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. And the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he arose from his throne, removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he assumed, and he issued a proclamation and published, plus, published it through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger that they may not perish. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. This is the word of God. Let me pray for us. Jesus, as we read your word, this is your sermon to us. Everything else will just be commentary and added words. Um, I pray now that um, as our hearts even begin to be stirred at just your proclamation and your love for us, I pray that you're opening up our hearts that where we have been disobedient and where we have uh, fleed from your presence, that God, that we know that we worship a, a patient God who is steadfast and good to us. Um, I pray for those in here that are like Jonah, um, who are walking away from you. I pray that this will be a moment of uh, rescuing for them. Uh, I pray for um, 
all of us, that we will recognize that, Jesus, that you are good to us and that while we were yet sinners, that you died for us. We are Jonah, Lord. Help us to know that this is not just some dude in the Old Testament and whom we pity, but instead Jonah is truly, he is a picture of who we are in heart, mind, and spirit. And so help us to come underneath your word, underneath your authority this morning. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. All right, so um, I hope that you brought a pencil or at least you have really fast thumbs and typing and able to type quickly. Uh, we're going to go to class today. This will not be a sermon per se. Uh, normally I come and I preach uh, really hard. Today will be more of a teaching, all right? And so we're just going to go like point one to, you know, we're just going to just fly through these types of things. So we really want you to take some notes. And the reason for that is we are in a season of, of proclamation, we're in a season of what it means to be on mission together. We are now on the, in our third month of being in this kind of this, this conversation with ourselves of what it means for us as a corporate body to be on mission corporately together where we are reaching our family and we are reaching our neighbors and we are reaching the nations and everywhere in between. Um, in May, we came out uh, uh, in public with our definition of what we mean by what it means to be on mission, and we've picked Jonah, and it's just a very, very missional book. And so in kind of the, the vein of where we are as a faith family, I just thought it'd be good to take chapter three and give you guys some nuts and bolts on what it means to be on mission together. And what's happening with, with us as a as a church family, is also happening with us as a personal family. And I hope that what is happening in our, our home and inside you know, our, my conversations with Nicole and what's happening with the Teals is also happening in your homes, that you hear this, this, this message of mission and you understand that the Great Commission tells us to go and proclaim the good news of Jesus to other people and your hearts are beginning to melt and your hearts are starting to mold to what God has asked us and where he sees and where he proclaims is true human flourishing is where we step out of our comfort zone and we step into the lives of other people. And so what's happening at our church, it's happening in our home, it's happening in my heart, is I'm starting to change. I'm starting to see a grander or a bigger picture. And that's why we've tried to be really, really intentional to bring missionary after missionary up into this space to give you a picture or give you a window into the world as far as what is going on. And so here we are. I'm going to talk 10 points on what the beauties of the gospel, but also, also to equip you in how to proclaim. And so we're just going to fly through these. I doubt we'll get to all 10. And so I'm going to try to just to get through five of them, and we'll just sit where it is. So here we go, jumping in. Point number one, there's point number one. Uh, to understand that um, in order for us to see and understand the beauty of the gospel, but also to be able to proclaim the gospel, that you and I must understand the main plot line of the Bible. All right? So you and I must believe, and we must understand the main plot line of the Bible. And that happens in chapter 2, verse 9. It's a simple phrase, right? And it boils down, and it doesn't necessarily blow you away. But this is, this is the, kind of the main plot line of the Bible. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You and I have to understand that and believe that, that this is the great theme of the Bible, 
that we are sinners and we run from God and God pursues us in offering us salvation. Where we run and we are rebellious, we run in our pursuit away from the presence of the Lord. And that's one reason why we read the whole passage is for you to see Jonah's journey to continue down and down and down, down to Joppa, down into a boat, down into the depths of the sea, down into the belly of the well. Like he just continues this descent. But what we see, the plot line of the Bible is that salvation, this idea of deliverance belongs to the Lord. And so what is the Bible all about? Well, if you ask this guy named Ed, Edmund Clowney, who was an old professor of Gordon-Conwell Seminary, he would look at Jonah chapter 2, verse 9, and he said, that is the one verse that tells us all about the Bible. Now, many of us haven't highlighted Jonah 2, verse 9, but that's a strong statement by Dr. Clowney. For the whole Bible to be reduced to this little phrase, that salvation belongs to the Lord. And the reason he says this is because you and I have our hearts set on saving ourselves. Let me say that again. That you and I, our hearts and our minds have it set that we can save ourselves. That we can do it on our own. That we are able to do things because we are accomplished or that because we are skilled or because we come from the right family group and those types of things. But we have to yield to that natural bent and Force our, force our mind into that phrase that salvation belongs to, us, belongs to the Lord, not ourselves. And so as we are going down, God pursues us. We believe that there's um, imminent death for all of us. You know, one, and out of, out of one out of every one person dies, right? And so that's kind of what we understand about our life is as healthy as we are, and as good as we are and as successful as we are, at some point, you and I are going to cease to live on this earth. This idea, and we're, we see death around us. We, we've known our, our grandmother or our grandfather. We've known our, our mom or dad or maybe even a child of ours. So we, we, we know our mortality. But this is not just a sad day. This is kind of a, a, a conundrum of all of humanity, is that because we all die, we know that there is judgment on us. And so for that judgment to be lifted, we have to be saved, and we have to understand that salvation comes from the Lord. And so this threat of death, this idea that we die, means that we do not have it in and of ourselves for our ultimate liberation, our ultimate delivery. We need God to own that set of cards. And so the idea is that um, it is never too late, right? God's hand is never too short to reach down into the darkest parts of your life and rescue you. Some of you think that you are too far gone or you've done too much bad stuff. Or the, the place in your, your, even your life right now is that you are unrescuable. The idea of the book of Jonah, especially in verse 2 verse 9, is that there, you're never too far away from the Lord. The salvation his purpose, God's very purpose for us is that he longs to give us salvation. Point number one is that you, for us to declare, before we can proclaim the good news of Jesus, we have to understand the good news of Jesus. And point number one is that you must understand the main plot line of the Bible. And the main plot line of the Bible is, class, aha, here we go. Isn't this fun? This is great. Point number two. 
flip the page. I like this lectern kind of, okay. All right, point number two. Sorry, I'll, I'll start telling the stories and we won't be out of here before lunch. All right, point number two. Uh, you must believe in the resurrection, all right? So before you can proclaim the good news of Jesus, before you can go and understand the good news that, that life and salvation belongs to the Lord, you must believe in the resurrection. And while we see that in Jesus, we may not see this in Jonah, but you will, right? The idea that life comes from death, all right? This idea that there's an exchange, that life actually comes from death. That before you're able to go forward, you've got to believe in the plot line that it's all God's, it's all his, he gets the credit, it's not us. But then ultimately, you have to understand that there's an exchange here, that death for life, you have to believe in the resurrection. Verse 9 says this, salvation belongs to the Lord. Verse 10 says this, and the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. This is where hope begins. For two chapters, everything is a downward, like a roller coaster straight down. And now we're about to hit the bottom and do the whirlies, right? We're going we're to do something amazing. This is the tilt of the entire uh, book of Jonah. And the Lord spoke to the fish and vomited Jonah out upon dry land. When was vomit, vomit ever a good idea? Says no one who has children, right? Who wants to clean that up, right? Uh, I think the worst job um, is like being like uh, it's responsible for cleaning up like the kindergarten wing when like a, the flu bug comes through an elementary school. Like who wants that job? No one. However, however, here in verse 10, we see it as hope. We see it as rescue. We see it as amazing that this is the first amazing vomit right, ever in human history. I'm away from my notes. I need to stop. All right, but vomit. Here we are. The Lord spoke to the, to, to the fish, and he is now upon dry land. The point is not the fish. The point is not the vomit. The point is that the Lord is now doing something for Jonah that he could not do for himself. What looked like death is now life. He's bought new shoes. He's got some boots, and now he's standing on some shore on the Mediterranean Sea. And he keeps going, doing this. That's dry, yo. I mean, that is like, that's solid earth beneath my feet. And this is why it's so hopeful, is that what looked like death is now there's just a, just, just a moment of hope, just a moment of rescue. And so, out of the, out of, out of the pit... You called me up, he would then pray. Up and up and up we go. That this is the Lord that is going to do. He's going to make dead things live. He's going to make things that look dead and look perishing actually vibrant and alive and well. Jonah was accustomed to deep oceans. Jonah was accustomed, right, to a deep sleep. Jonah was accustomed to like deep ruin, literally rotting inside the belly of a well, and yet God calls him up. And this is a Jonah principle, right, that we see in Jonah, but we also see this in Jesus, that Jesus was dead, right, in the belly of the earth, that he was, uh, like he had, uh, Ephesians 4, he descended into just the bowels of the earth, the inner belly of the earth, and yet Jesus, or the Lord, the Father, ascended him back into heaven. We, before we were able to proclaim, we have to understand resurrection, we have to understand that life comes from death. The full restoration of Jonah is that he has 
he is now looking very, very differently. He stinks. He looks like death, right? No one wants to be around him. And yet this guy understands what it means to be rescued. He has a story to tell. John chapter 12, there's a unique moment where you and I get to kind of like tamper with or get to look at this idea of resurrected life here while we're still kind of on earth. It goes like this. John chapter 12, it says, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So if a grain of wheat, if you just have a seed, right, a grain of wheat, if it just remains in your pocket, if it remains in a pouch, or if it remains in a storage bin, guess what it's always going to be? It's always going to be a grain of wheat. It's just going to be what it is, molecules or whatever it is, is you can just stare at it. But unless it dies, unless it dies and goes down into the belly of a well, unless it goes down into the belly of the earth, unless it falls into the earth and dies, It'll just remain just a piece of seed. But if it does that, if it truly does fall into the earth and it truly does die, it bears much fruit. You see the resurrection principle, right? You see it there that from death, life actually comes to you and me. And we see it over and over and over in us. Second Corinthians 4 would say it like this. So death is at work in us, but life to other people in that you and I have the ability right here and in our own lives to be able to walk into a sacrificial life where we are willingly laying down our lives for other people. Resurrection life is not just something, some kind of future reality, but it's for you and I to sacrifice our life. And that's why this gospel proclamation, this idea of, of witness to give away something else is that you can't come forward with your personality. You can't come forward with where you know, like your pedigree or where you've been. What you offer is Jesus and Jesus alone. It is death to yourself, right? Putting down all of your achievements and kind of your resume and only offering the, res- uh, the resume of Jesus. I'll give you a, a kind of a, an example here. Uh, for some people, um, self-sacrifice is to serve others, and, and serving others is a way of life. So there's this guy named Paul Farmer, never met him. But he works about two months out of the year in Boston as he heads up the infectious disease program at Harvard. Pretty big dude, right? But he only does this two months out of the year. The rest of the year, he spends most of his time in Haiti. This is a poverty-written uh, community with no affordable health care. When doing an interview, people ask him, why? Dr. Farmer, why would you do this? And he says that his faith compels him to help those less fortunate than himself. He will give up his livelihood for the livelihood of others. This is kind of the resurrection principle. Farmer's sacrifice, this this is a quote from an article, not mine. Farmer's sacrifice was caught, has caught the attention of a Pulitzer Prize winning Tracy Kidder, who was working on a book you know, to, to write about Farmer. So in an interview, Kidder asked him this, or this is his, his summation. Kidder says, it is not as though what he is doing is somehow inhuman or superhuman. Again, very secular person, and this is how he would diagnose Farmer. He says, it is not as though 
this guy who looks like he is on the cusp of actual human, like he is sacrificing himself. It is not as though he is doing something inhuman or superhuman. Instead, it's intensely human. What we see in Farmer, this guy is saying, is what we should see in all of humanity. So when you hang out with Paul, you begin to think that altruism, a big fancy kind of Harvard word, which basically means selfless concern for the sake of others. You begin to believe that this selfless concern for others is normal and that this other stuff that we tend to think about as making us human, this idea of natural greed or selfishness, that those are the things that should be abnormal to us. What Farmer is able to do is another way of seeing the world tilt on its, on its, on its axis. And so this is a picture of resurrection, giving your life for others. This is the Jonah principle. This is the Jesus principle. This is the gospel exchange. I will give my life for yours. And we see this playing out in the book of Jonah. If you're going to proclaim the beauty of the the, the gospel to others, you're going to have to understand resurrection, that life comes from death, okay? Life comes from death. All right, point number three. All right, point number three goes like this. You must be equipped with God's word. Point number three, you got to be equipped with God's word. You got to, got to, got to. So salvation belongs to the Lord, and the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon dry land. We are now in chapter three, verse one. And the word of the Lord, there we go. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Verse 3, again, if you've got your, your little booklet, you need to start circling some words because this is amazing. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. And what's that next phrase? What's that next phrase? Ah, here we go. Okay, we, maybe some of us have our Bibles out. Okay, yes, yeah, so if you don't have it, here we go. It says, the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, and then verse 3, according to the word of the Lord. And so we see that we, before we're able to, like, able to give it away, it's got to indwell in us that you must be equipped with God's words. Twice in this one, in, in this first passage, verse 1 and 3, it says that the word of the Lord came. And then we also see Jonah living according to the word. That's very different from what we see in chapter 1. We'll get there in a second. But here Jonah is hearing God's word and actually moving his life or, or, or saturating his life with the word. As we were taught last week, we had a missionary. His name was Ludicrish. He came in to teach us doing an evangelism training. It was amazing. And he says, point blank, lead out with God's word. Like, don't come out with personality. Lead out with God's word because it's God's word that can make people's hearts melt. It will actually pry their hearts open and it will actually shut our mouths. It's God's word that actually brings humility, not our cleverness. It's actually God's word that will do all of the heavy lifting for us. Will was, Will was leading us last week and he was talking about chapter 2. And chapter 2 is, is in, in the form of poetry. And all of this poetry in chapter 2, and we read it, and it's nice, and it's neat, and it's wonderful. But if you start doing some digging as to where these words came from, Jonah, in the belly of the well, as he's praying out and actually writing his own song, 
as he is praying and crying out to the Lord, he is actually quoting scripture. Is a lot of this, or most of this psalm of Jonah, is actually stolen from the Psalter, actually stolen from the Psalms. What, what um, Jonah is crying out to the Lord is not original. These are not his words. These are God's words that he's crying back out to the Lord. If we are going to be equipped to give God's word away, or uh, equipped to give the gospel, the word of God must live and dwell richly in us. We have to be people of the word. That is who we are, because what people need to hear is not our words, but God's words alone. Jonah is quoting the Old Testament. Jonah is quoting the Psalter for a reason, because he knows that's where the lifeblood of rescue comes is from God's word. There's a lot of speculation in this world, right? a lot of doubt in this world. People are wanting to stand on dry ground. Jonah is offering that to us this morning. A saying, depend on God's word. There's a lot of data. This is an information age. I mean, just, I mean, we're just inundated with lots and lots and lots of data. But we don't have trustworthy, eternal words to dwell on. But we have been given a gift in God's word. Before we can give away the gospel of, of Jesus, we need to realize that this, his good, good news comes from being equipped in God's word. The word is more powerful than Jonah's rebellion. Who wins? The word of the Lord or Jonah? The word of the Lord is more powerful than a great city called Nineveh. The word of the Lord comes to a great city and the entire city falls to their knees immediately. The word of the Lord is that powerful. The word of the Lord comes to the ear of a king who's literally sitting on the throne and the joker gets up off the throne and says, this does not belong to me. The real throne is from on high. And the reason he gets up and he, and he su- succeeds the, the throne, the real throne, to the God of heaven is because the word of the Lord came to him and convicted him in a second. The power does not rest in you and me or our personality or even our character. Because the word of God was even stronger than Jonah's rebellion. It is that heavy. It does the heavy lifting for us. And so if we want change and we want to see our city come to know Jesus, if you want to see our neighbors come to know Jesus, start handing out God's word. Because things change. Like literal things change when we give away God's word. We want you to read it. right? We want you to memorize it. We want you to be saturated in it. And so that when you're squeezed, all right, or when you talk, just like Jonah, that when you are talking with your girlfriends or you're talking with your friends about your, just the, the tragedy in life or what have you, we want you, like Jonah in chapter 2, that the word of God just kind of, just kind of makes its way in a part of your DNA. We know that for some of you, reading your Bible is, is hard, right? Or we know that you can be inconsistent with that. We get it. That's no judgment here. We just want you to start. We want you to kind of take a step. And so on the back, there's this, this thing called the Community Bible Reading Plan. It's a little journal, right, that uh, and we'll, I'll even pay for it today. So if you want to take it, it's, you know, just take it. It's on me this morning. If you want to take the step, just the first step of reading your Bible, Use this as an artifact because it really will get you started. And the beauty of this is that 
the people who are reading community Bible reading plan, we all read the exact same chapters. There's two chapters that we read every day, and we read it, and we read the same chapters every single day. And so instead of you just reading your Bible in a personal quiet time, it's as if you're reading your Bible with 100 other friends, and we're all kind of marinating in the Word together. Not that it's the end-all, be-all of, of all reading plans, but it's just the first start. So if you're struggling, if you haven't found your uh, consistency in, in your life, we would encourage you to pick that up today. So point number three, you must be equipped with God's Word. Point number four, here we go. We must proclaim that the Lord is the Lord of second chances. We must proclaim that the Lord is Lord of second chances. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. That's amazing. I don't know where your life has been, but I've seen mine. And my life is just one big fist fight with the Lord after another. One stubborn approach to live my life the way I want to live it after another. One dark season of life where I did not deserve the grace of Jesus, and yet he extended it to me. We worship a God in your darkest seasons, in your most complex season, in the hardest circumstance, your immovable object, and he continues to shed grace and his patience and his pursuit on you and me. The story of the gospel is the story of a second chance. We don't get what we deserve. What we deserve is death. We don't get that. We get a second chance. We get this idea that God can be patient with us or that God can be merciful for us. Mercy is that we, will get, we, we deserve a punishment, and he removes that from us. And we must proclaim. If we're going to proclaim anything, is that the Lord is the Lord of second chances. And so when Jonah starts out, and the word of the Lord comes to him, we realize that this is not three strikes and you're out. This is not just, you know, you had one chance and now you're, you're yanked out of there. But instead, that God is very, very patient and he is persistent and he will pursue us. The good news of the gospel has to be mounted on the wall of God's character, not yours. What you are proclaiming and the things that you will rest on is not your obedience, but God's persistence and patience with you and me. And so, yes, we have blown it. We've blown it big time. And we believe that the Lord would never accept us in that kind of season. And yet we worship a very patient God, one who is able to kind of walk alongside of us in our frustration or in our disobedience. This is what he's able to do for us. We worship a God who is patient toward, toward us. God loves a comeback story, right? All, I mean, great stories have been written about comeback stories where the guy was just, I mean, dead to rights, and yet he comes and he turns his life around. We love those kinds of stories. Why? Because we get to see the full gamut. We get to see the bad news before we get to see the good news. We just need to realize that when we're walking into people's lives, when we're looking at our own hearts, we need to realize that God himself, because of this little book, because of this chapter, because of this one verse, God is the God 
of second chances. God loves a comeback story. He wants to see Jonah contri- I mean, completely change and reclaim for his glory rather than selfish amb- ambition. And so the fourth thing that you and I have to realize is that the Lord, the Lord is a Lord of second chances. And lastly, we got to, we got to boogie. Point number five is that God uses flawed but changed individuals. So for whatever reason, God uses individuals like you and me who are both flawed, deeply flawed, and yet changed, turning. So the similarities between chapters 1 and chapter 3 is remarkable. Chapter 1 starts out like this. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call against it, for their evil has come up before me. Chapter 3 starts, uh, says like this. I'm not reading a different chapter, or the same chapter. I'm reading a different one. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and call out against, the, uh, call ag- call out against it the message that I tell you. Going back to chapter 1. But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa, found a ship, going to Tarshish, paid the fare, went down into it to go to them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Go to chapter 3. So Jonah arose, and he went to Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. Two different chapters Probably 150 words or so separating these two, these two verses. But man, what the difference. Instead of fleeing from the presence of the Lord, we see Jonah obeying and pursuing the Lord. So the similarities between chapters 1 and 3 are remarkable, minus our main character, minus our guy, Jonah. He is a changed man. He was once disobedient. He was once selfish. He was trying to protect himself. He was reluctant. He wanted to do it his own way. He was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. And yet in chapter 3, we see, we see the same guy. His name is Jonah. The Lord honors Jonah by continuing to call him his name. Jonah, full of dignity and worth, even in his disobedience. He continues to pursue Jonah for Jonah, and yet he's in the place of change. You see, the arc of, jo- of this book is that Jonah had a, a redemptive narrative. He had a story to, to go from a selfish person into a conduit for God's, God's, God's uh, message. But the same arc that, he, that God wanted for the city of Nineveh, he also wanted for Jonah himself. This is not a book just for the salvation of the city of Nineveh. This is like a true pursuit of Jonah's heart and Jonah's transformation. And in the same way, they both had to go on a journey. And so before before we proclaim the gospel of Jesus, we have to go soul-searching ourselves to make sure our hearts are melted by the good news of the gospel. Is it us? Is it our pedigree? Is it what we're able to offer? No. What's changed in Jonah? Chapter 2 tells us that he dwelt in the presence of the Lord. That's the thing that's changed. He has met with Jesus. He's met with the Lord, and his heart has softened. So he's willing to obey the Lord for what he says, no matter how hard it is. And so we have to realize that God can send angels 
and God can talk through donkeys, and God can go through dreams. But over and over and over, he goes and he wants his message proclaimed through human agents, just like you and me. He's actually made us ambassadors. He made us, he's made us heralds. He wants us to be his witnesses to the end of the world. That means he wants to use you. As messed up as you are, whatever season you're in, he still wants to use you and your story. You are an instrument in the hands of the Redeemer. We must realize that we're the revival of a great city is hinged on the obedience of one man. God could have used all kinds of agents. He didn't. The revival, the change of an entire city, God used the obedience of one rebellious but changed man. I wonder if there's that kind of power in here. And I know there is. Because the same spirit that rose Christ Jesus, our Lord, dwells in us. And we are able to dwell richly. Let the word of God dwell richly in us. We too can be instruments in the hand of a redeemer, coming alongside others who are hurting or in pain with a gift, the gift of the good news of Jesus. There's five more points next week. We'll hit them. If you're not going to be here next week, right, um, I'll go ahead and throw them to you. Point number six, you got to say something. Point number seven, there has to be a call for a decision. Did I miss one? Oh, no. Point number six, you got to say something. Point number seven, God loves the city. Point number eight, there has to be a call for a decision. Point number nine, it requires faith. Point number ten, God's judgment has been stopped. All right, so that's where we'll be next week. Um, But before we walk into our communion moment, let's pause and reflect on today's sermon. Lord, um, I'm not sure exactly how this is sitting with us, but I know that as I journeyed through these initial verses of this, I just was stopped in my tracks and humbled by my rebellion against you. I mean, a professional Christian who gets paid by this church, but still a rebellious heart nonetheless, who finds it hard to pray, Sometimes hard to study. Sometimes hard to come alongside others in their pain. And just realize that, Lord, that I am Jonah. And that's both the good sense and the bad, that even in our rebellious nature, that God, that you can make our hearts malleable and you can turn our hearts toward you. Jesus, today we want to sing of your goodness. And so we're going to take communion And we're going to take communion, not as whipped puppies or with our heads down, but the realization that you have chosen us, that you have called us by name, and you have welcomed us to this table. Not because we're perfect, not because we're good, but because you are perfect and you are good and you're so patient and kind to welcome us to this table. So Jesus, as we walk to this table as a family, Lord, help us to walk with this humility. Humility knowing that it's not our message to give away. But also with the boldness that Jesus died to give us the good news of the gospel. He want us, wanted us to proclaim your good news to the world. 
I pray that in our circles and inside of our prayer time, and as we approach these things, that Jesus, that you are changing us from a rebellious people to people who are bold and praying bold prayers and are stepping out in faith to proclaim the goodness of the resurrection of Christ Jesus. The scriptures tell us that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, that he took a piece of bread and he broke it. And he says, this is my body given, given for you. He was giving us a picture of what was about to happen to himself. And the only way that salvation was going to come through mankind is for him to lay down his life for others. The image gets even more graphic when he passes a chalice of wine. He says, this is the blood of the new covenant for the forgiveness of sins. And so I must be poured out like a drink offering. I must be poured out for you. And so when we approach this table, we realize that this is not our identity. This is Jesus' identity. It's not our, we cannot save our own lives. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And every time we approach this table, we don't have an altar call, those types of things, if you've been in those types of churches. Instead, we believe that salvation belongs to the Lord and that you and I, every single week, must square with this idea that it's Jesus, not us. It's his identity, not ours. And yet, he welcomes us to the table. And so there's, these, there's men all around the room, and they have um, uh, little cups and, and, and crackers for you. I'll also be up here uh, serving this communion meal I, I prayerfully ask you to consider coming to this table and realize that your identity is in Jesus and uh, in Jesus alone. Um, if you're far from Jesus, um, if you're living a disobedient lifestyle, realize that this table is for sinners, but humble sinners, sinners who realize that their, their identity comes from him and him alone. So go ahead and stand. Uh, these stations are open, so come and approach this table whenever you see fit.